to do something with my hands and to do something sort of with the other side of my brain is very, can be very rewarding. Some days I can just sort beads for weeks because there's no inspiration and then I can have an inspiration. Welcome everyone to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited to introduce to you today's guest, Andrea Kramer. Andy is a lawyer, keynote speaker, artist, and women's rights activist. While balancing her successful and demanding legal career, Andy has helped thousands of women navigate both the obvious and the subtle gender biases they encounter in career settings. She's co-author of the incredible book, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, which is available for pre-order now and will officially launch in about a week or so. And she's also the co-founder of the Women's Leadership and Mentoring Alliance, which recruits senior women to mentor and support younger women on their way up. Not only that, but in 2012, Andy founded Andy K, a business through which she makes and sells one-of-a-kind handmade jewelry and whose stated mission is to support charities that are empowering women and promoting gender equality. I was just blown away by Andy during this conversation. We talked about the shocking advice that she was given as a child interested in pursuing a career in law, as well as her own experience with bias and what inspired her to not just combat this issue in her own career, but to help thousands of other women in doing the same. We also dived into her for-purpose business, Andy K, the jewelry business, as well as what she's doing to help women find mentors who can further their career and help them to rise up and fulfill their potential. I know you're going to be just as inspired by Andy as I was. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only Andrea Kramer. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm excited to have you here. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, let's dive straight into your story. Could you set the stage for us? You know, what was life like for you growing up? And what were the beliefs around money and success that were instilled in you as a child? Well, my family was at the bottom end of the middle class, I would think. Uh, and um, for me, if uh, you get two gifts a year, your birthday and then for the holidays, and that was it. So uh, fast forward to successful legal career, it's a very different world from the world that I, you know, that I grew, grew up in. When I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer, I was probably 11, 12, or 13 years old, and my parents knew one lawyer. And so they asked him if he would meet me for lunch and talk to me about career advice to which I met this man and he spent the entire lunch hour telling me how I did not want to be a lawyer, that uh, no one liked lady lawyers, that if I was a lawyer, then uh, no one would ever love me. I would never have a family. No I, would no I would be lonely and have no friends. And so that was the 
introduction to the legal world that I received from the one mentor that I had as a child. But obviously, it dissuaded you clearly. Obviously, it didn't dissuade me. No, that's correct. Wow, that is unbelievable. Well, you know, I I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of a perfect lead-in, if your passion for gender equality in the workplace stemmed from personal experience of workplace bias. Would you say it did? Absolutely. When I was told about lady lawyers, I knew that um, I wasn't planning on paying any attention to him. But um, uh, when I first got out of law school, I worked at a tiny little law firm where they couldn't have cared if you were purple polka dotted. If you did a good job, everybody wanted you on their projects. Then I moved to a big law firm. And what I found in a big firm is that because people don't know you and don't know what your capacities and skills and ambitions are, then they put you into buckets based on who you are. And so as a woman and the mother of a young child, I was put into the bucket of, well, obviously she can't be committed to work and she's not, you know, what is she doing in that corner office? None of this is making any sense, basically. That's really what um, started me down the the road of trying to to make changes. You know, of course, the easy thing to do would have been to you know keep your head down and and only really worry about bias in your own career. But instead, you chose to you know really pursue this purpose and helping all of these other women to navigate this issue. So. You know, Andy, what inspired you to, you know, play big and step outside of your legal career to take action on gender equality? I guess the point that that radicalized me, if you will, is um, I served on our management committee and also our compensation committee. And what I saw on the comp- when I was on the compensation committee is that the self-evaluations that were written by the men, they talked about how they were total rock stars how they had saved the client a gazillion dollars. They scaled the Empire State Building. They uh, identified all the damsels in distress that they could find on the way down, and they would rescue them single-handedly. And the women who had come up with the ideas that saved the client all this money would write, I was on the ABC team, and I worked with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And who do you think was making more money? The men. Exactly. Exactly. So that's really what got me going. So the first article that I wrote um, was called um, Bragging Rights about what women needed to do in their self-evaluations. And um, I still get notes from people. That's probably 15, 20 years ago. I still get notes from people about, um, you know, I still use those and I still pass them around. So... Uh, but that was that was the turning point for deciding that there were more things that I could do than just worry about my own little corner of the world. You know, how has this issue of gender equality and workplace bias changed or shifted in you know the years that you have been focused on this? Well, back in the old old days, people would say things like, "What? She's a woman. I don't want to work with a woman." that disappeared and it kind of went underground so that what we would have is the, oh, sure, I'm totally unbiased and I I support everybody, but who do I invite to work on my important projects? The guys who look just like me. 
and I would leave the women to the side. Interesting, um, I've written both It's Not You, It's the Workplace, and another book uh, with my husband. And the other book is Breaking Through Bias, Communication Techniques for Women to Succeed at Work. What we found was that in speaking about the biases, it was more implicit unconscious biases just even three, four years ago. But now as we're doing a new introduction for Breaking Through Bias, it's going to be reissued and we're doing a new introduction, what we found is that we're really writing about all of the obvious, explicit, intentional, racist, and misogynistic. It's now socially acceptable to be able to say, well, I don't want to work with her, or, you know, I like people whose skin color is the same as mine. So, it's a, it's a terrible commentary on where our country's moving, and hopefully it's a temporary and not a permanent shift. Yeah. I was thinking a lot as I was getting ready for our interview about my first job out of college, which was at a startup. I did my internship at a big accounting firm, but then ultimately went to go work for a, a very different startup. And I honestly... If I'm being real, I didn't even really notice when I first started working there that I was the only woman at the company. Um, it wasn't really something that I thought about consciously, but I did have this experience um, about two years in where I, you know, happened to stumble across some information that showed me that I was making significantly less than a couple of my coworkers who I considered to be, you know, equals on the team. You know, I could certainly argue looking back that you know they were in a very different role. They were in a much more technical role. I could certainly make arguments the other way. But at the time, I just thought, you know, this is bullshit. Like, I, I should be making more money. And so I scheduled a meeting with my boss and I went in there and I asked him for a $22,000 raise. <laughs> and that, of course, took, uh, took no small amount of guts. I was very... Um, my uh, my father actually gave me the advice, you know, ask for double what you really want because they're not going to give you what you really want. And so I asked for twenty two thousand dollars more, and they gave me ten, and I was thrilled. Um, and that um, you know went went quite a long way in closing that gap. And so I bring it up because I'm wondering, you know, what role do women need to take actively or proactively? In advocating for themselves and you know helping to reduce the impact of the implicit bias that their managers might be experiencing. Well, you're, thank goodness for your father for helping you or kicking your butt to get you to do that. But um, what happens is because of the stereotypes that we grow up with about women and men and leaders and family and professionals and all of this stuff. What happens is women are trained. We're trained by the time we're four or five years old. Don't get your dress dirty. Don't tear your tights. Be a good girl. And the boys, oh, well, they're just boys. They're allowed to do whatever they want to do. And so they also learn by three, four, five years old that if they want to play on the t-ball team, they're going to have to be nice to the captain, even if they think he's an idiot. And so women first starting as girls and then growing up, we're trained basically to not be 
assertive and to demand what we want. It's more of a, well, somehow they'll figure it out and they'll, um, you know, they'll reward me accordingly, kind of. And so that's really why starting with the bragging rights for the self-evaluation do's and don'ts, um, moving to our first book, which was helping women, basically giving women permission to do exactly what you did, to give them permission to go in and say, this isn't fair and here's what would be fair. Um, because it's, a, it, it's counter-stereotypical and it's forcing us to do things that we've been programmed to not do, which is good girls just take what you get. You don't ask for what you're entitled to. Changing gears a little bit, I'd love to go more into your journey as an entrepreneur. So, you know, you are working as a lawyer, you've got the corner office, you're very successful in that career, and you start writing these articles. You know, how did that transform into the books, the speaking, you know, everything that it ultimately became? Well, what happened for me is that I realized that I had something to say that other people were not talking about. It worked into my daily schedule. I would do 50 speeches a year. I would do that while I was working full-time. And I still work full-time, but I do the podcasts and the speeches and the workshops and the writing. And now at least I have my husband who is uh, works almost full-time, if not full-time, on our book stuff and our, our I couldn't do what I do without his without his support and without his contribution. So he really makes it happen in that sense. But that helps women at the top of the pyramid, basically. It's women who want to succeed, who have careers. And the other entrepreneurial piece that I care very much about is that I want to help the women who are at the bottom of the pyramid, who are trying to hang on, at least even stay on it. And um, through that, that's where I started my jewelry business for to benefit women and children, basically. And so I make one-of-a-kind handcrafted design pieces that I sell, and uh, the proceeds go to benefit charities for women and children. And the, I try to source the beads to benefit women and children as well. I try to deal with the top and the bottom of the pyramid at the same time. So tell me the story of how Andy K started. Why jewelry? You know, how did this whole thing evolve? Well, I was teaching classes in Africa and Asia where I would do three-day workshops and um, had an opportunity to get to see much of, of the world that I wouldn't have seen otherwise as a lawyer, I would see the amazing textiles and fabrics and jewelry that these women would be wearing, and the men as well in, in, in many of these countries. And I started to bring home beads from my travels. And for a number of years, what I did was I made the world's coolest napkin rings, of which I still enjoy making. And one day, uh, my husband said to me, you cannot make another napkin ring. <laughs> and I said, what do you care? <laughs> and he said, that bead is just too pretty. It's a beautiful bead and it doesn't belong in a napkin ring. You have to do something else. And I said, what? I, I, I'm not going to 
I'm not start a business and change my, you know, it's, it's not going to change my day job. And so then thought about it for a while. And I thought, well, it doesn't change my day job, which is as a lawyer, but I can do something to benefit, to expand the charitable activities that I care about in, in, in this way. And so that's how Andy K was formed. Amazing. So, you know, what, what does Andy K look like today? What are the kinds of charities that you've been able to support? And I'm curious also, you know, what the business really means to you personally from a standpoint of, you know, fulfillment. What I try to do is I know that um, it would be nice if I could make a, make a profit, but um, that's really not I mean, the objective is to to make enough money that I can give it away. All day I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm thinking, and to do something with my hands and to do something sort of with the other side of my brain is very, can be very rewarding. Some days I can just sort beads for weeks because there's no inspiration, and then I can have an inspiration. So for me, it's it's a, a way of uh, relaxing. It's a way of decompressing. So that's really what it what it's about for me. I try very hard to make sure that that I, wherever I can source beads that are fair trade, I try to do that. There's a a, a, a man who speaks English in Mali, the country of Mali, where he was an, an interpreter for friends of ours. In Mali, they've had um, civil war and they've had some terrible things. And there's very few people going to Mali now who speak English. And so here's a guy whose job was to translate into Arabic or uh, the local um, languages or French into English. And he isn't really able to support his family. And so he speaks English and he has a computer. And so he will go into the markets in Mali. And he'll identify beads for me and he'll send me photos and then I'll pick things. And so I give him a commission It's and he buys beads for me to work with. Again, the reality is I could probably get them a lot cheaper through, through some website, but it's a key part of it is, is, is helping him and his family and, and people like that. So that's really very rewarding for me. Amazing. Well, you know, talk to me about the Women's Leadership and Mentoring Alliance. I know this is something else that uh, you co-founded, you know, really to support women, you know, in their careers and to provide mentorship opportunities. How did that start? You know, what does that program look like? Well, it's been about 12, 15 years now. And uh, three, there were three of us who founded it together. I've been the board chair from the beginning. I'm still the board chair. Um, and um, what we did is we found that there's a lot of senior women who have a lot that they want to give back, but they don't know how to do that. And they don't have the access sometimes to the junior women who could use their help. And so what we did is the Women's Leadership and Mentoring Alliance, at, at various points, it has had uh, sort of uh, groups in Chicago and D.C. and New York and L.A. Now primarily because of the work that I've done on my these two books, I haven't really been able to give it the amount of attention that it needs. And so we, the last mentorship program that we put together was two, was almost two years ago, and we're now working to put a new program together for this year. It's a six-month program. We've got a unique 
curriculum, basically, that we've put together. What makes it unique from other mentorship organizations is that typically they're industry-based. You know, you're a bunch of lawyers, you're going to do mentor a bunch of other lawyers. You're a bunch of accountants, you're going to mentor accountants. And we try to cross over to different uh, industries and institutions, which we found has been really effective because it allows women to learn from each other to know, hey, it's not just my industry. It's not just my company. This is what it's like across the board. And so it allows them to feel more confident and free to be honest and candid to talk about what it is that their hopes and dreams are. And the other thing is that most mentorship programs just assign you randomly mentors and mentees. And we go to great, great effort to try to make sure that if you want to meet with somebody in the western suburbs of wherever and you don't want to come downtown to to meet, that we'll find somebody who you can meet with in those western suburbs. If you want to meet by phone, we'll find somebody that wants to meet by phone, if you want to meet by Skype or whatever, so that we try to really tailor as well as what your hopes and dreams are. Well, I want to be a politician. Well, then we're going to try to find you some woman who's either run for office or has been in office to to work with you. And so those are the unique characteristics about Wilma. And um, we've got a huge group interested in kicking off this uh, next uh, this next mentorship uh, program. Yeah, I mean, I think mentorship is is so critical. I mean, I, I guests talk about that all the time, and it seems to me that it's becoming more and more common for companies to have some sort of mentorship program built in. So I'm curious, you know, what do you see as the advantages for you know for anyone or or women especially in finding a mentor outside of their company? Well. Finding a mentor, you need a mentor in your company, and you also need a sponsor. So in in your company, you really need somebody who's a sponsor, who's going to say, okay, this is what you need to do, and then here's how I'm going to help you get there. Mentors are more like, well, gee, you know, you're right. Maybe next time you should do it this way, and maybe you should think about changing this or doing that, where, where, where you need in your organization, you really need a sponsor. And having a mentor outside, you can't, sponsors have to be in your company. So f- you could have mentors outside. And having a mentor outside your company is that you can be totally candid with them about your company in a way that you're not going to be if it's a coworker. What are you going to do? You're going to complain about the boss, and then it gets back to the boss. So there's all sorts of reasons why having a, 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 an opportunity to meet with and talk to somebody outside of your company can be enormously valuable. I couldn't agree more. And so, you know, Andy, I think that one of the things that is most impressive to me about you and your story is just how many different places you know you've been able to successfully put your energy so you know through everything that you've done through the multiple books you know 50 speaking engagements a year you're doing podcasts you're running Andy K the jewelry business the mentoring company i mean 
all of these things that you're involved in, at the same time, you've never moved away or given up your career as a lawyer. So I'm curious, you know, how how did you manage to do that? I mean, <laughs> you, was there a, a a part of it that was you know advocating for yourself at work to be able to be remote or to be able to have flexible hours? What did that look like for you? Well, the answer to your question is basically I don't watch television. <laughs> okay, so I think that makes a big difference. I've never been interested in 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 watching television, so that does give me a lot more in my day than a lot of other people, frankly. But uh, having, having said that, one of the advantages of being a professional in a profession is that we are able to get our work done in a way that does not require us to punch a clock. And so if I choose to do a podcast with you, then I can decide to do my work when we hang up the, you know, when we get off the, the podcast. Um, there's a lot of people who don't have that flexibility because their jobs require that they, you know, report for duty and that they are, you know, there from nine to five or whatever. And so I'm very grateful for having a profession that does allow me to do all the things that I want to do and still have a full, full-time practice of law. Amazing. Well, Andy, I am just so blown away by you and by everything that you're accomplishing. And I truly wish that we had more time in this interview to dive more into the actual topic of workplace bias because, you know, as as a woman, I'm certainly interested and and I know a lot of the listeners are as well. And and it's affecting, you know, all of us, men and women, I would say, you know, have to um, you know, have to understand these issues and know how to deal with them. And so could you just talk me through you know, your two books? I know you have Breaking Through Bias, um, which came first, I believe, and then your new book, It's Not You, It's the Workplace. So for people who want to dive deeper into these topics, who are the two books for? How are they different? And uh, you know, what would you recommend for someone who wants to dive deeper? Okay. The first book is really about how women can navigate around, understand, overcome, or um, hit with their boxing gloves on, the stereotypes and biases that we face at work. So there's lots of things in there about how to say no, how to deal with meetings, how to, how, how to the language patterns that we use, the, the physical uh, body language that we use. And so that's really what I started with and what Al and I started with. But when we started to speak and, and talk about that book, a lot of women would say to us, I get along fine with the guys. I hate working with the women. Interesting. And the reaction was, well, can you tell me what is it about the, why do you not like working? Oh, the women are bitches. They're nasty. They're this, they're that. Okay. Um, that's interesting. Can you tell me how the women treat you differently from the men that you love working with treat you? Absolutely no difference. And what's that about? Well, that's about the stereotypes that women are supposed to be nice and kind and sweet. And if you're the boss and you're saying, do this, I need it by five o'clock, everybody's hair catches fire. Who does she think she is? And so the junior women looking up think that the senior women are nasty. And the senior women who've made it, have had to 
modify who they are to accommodate the the workplaces that are masculine values and cultures in most situations. So they've been told, well, you're different from the rest of those women. And so they look down and they're like, you're going to drag me down if you don't perform to the level. And so there's some of the, you're harder on your own kind of in some situations. And so it becomes a vicious cycle. And so the second book is about ways that women can do better jobs of being sisters and supporting a, a workplace sisterhood that we didn't focus on in the in the first book. So they they they're really companions. They build off of each other, but um, uh, they don't require any. You know, you don't have to start at square one and work your way through. Also, uh, they're both available on Amazon. The new book is coming out. Um, uh, should be out next week or two, probably. Uh, so they're available on, on Amazon. And our website, we have all sorts of blogs and tip sheets and things to deal with specific questions. Like I'm gaslighted all the time where somebody's telling me that I'm making this up, that the really, you, you're imagining that that this person is hostile to you. And so we've got a tip sheet on gas, how to avoid gas, gaslighting or uh, how to say no. Um, so things like that. And so I would urge people to visit our website and, um, to, you know, join the conversation with us on these important issues. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a phenomenal balance between just understanding the the culture of the workplace and the different factors at play with, you know, practical tips on how to navigate it and how to, uh, you know, really put our best foot forward and, and put ourselves in a position to succeed at work. Absolutely. That's the key. Well, by the time this interview airs, that book will be released. So everyone head over to Amazon and pick that up as well as Andy's first book, Breaking Through Bias. Andy and Al's, I should say. Yes. Well, Andy, where else can people go to learn more about you, about your speaking engagements, and of course, to get your Andy K. jewelry? Okay. Well, the speaking and the gender issues is at um, Andy and Al. Dot com And I confuse it because I spell Andy, A-N-D-I-E. So it's www.andieandal.com. And that's where they can uh, learn about our books and our speaking and whatnot. My jewelry site is Andy, A-N-D-I-E-K.com. I don't keep the website up with... As, as much as is is probably I should, uh, but you, very often it gives people ideas to say, well, I'd like something sort of like that. And then so a lot of the pieces then become very sort of custom. I, I'm looking for something in blue and I want it to have this length or, you know, whatever. And so then we'll, we'll, we'll collaborate together to put a piece together. And I have seen on your website, the the jewelry that you have on there for display is just absolutely phenomenal and made from incredibly unique materials as well that, that many people probably don't have any jewelry in their collection made, you know, from mother of pearl or horn or, you know, any of these unique materials that you're sourcing. So it's truly amazing. Well, thank you very much. Um, and as an animal lover, I can uh, assure everybody that no animals ever suffered to, to create any of the pieces that I make. Good, good. Well, Andy, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. 
Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And um, uh, let's see if we can't uh, do well and do good together. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to genuinely thank you for giving me this gift of your time and attention. I know how valuable that is. And so it truly means the world to be able to spread this message with you. Now, if you are getting value from this podcast, the most helpful thing you can do is to leave a five-star review and share this with your friends. Post a screenshot to your Instagram stories or even text the link to someone specific that you think would find value in this also. So with that, I hope this episode has inspired you to do well and do good. And I'll see you back here next week.